Thank you to Sam and Toby. That sounded great. Good morning. Hope everyone had a good week. Um, if anybody missed last week, and, and let's say you just listened to the audio, and you were like, who's preaching today? It was me. Uh, I've just had a bad cold. And I uh, definitely appreciate your prayers. I, I hopefully sound better. I'm still pretty congested, so people are going through much, much worse, but... Uh, I'm a bigger wimp than the average person, so um, it's good to see you guys today. We're continuing in our Advent series, Christmas in Genesis, and we'll be looking in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, all the way through chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, also, I would also would like to wish Carrie a happy birthday on this day, an undetermined number of years ago. A light was shining in Charlotte, North, North Carolina, where Carrie was born. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, in this passage we see the sinfulness of the human heart. But we rejoice that that is not the end of the story because we also see a picture of your grace. Lord, we pray for this church, we pray for the community. There's so much illness going around right now, Lord. People who have various health afflictions, diseases, needs, Lord, we know that you hear our prayers. Lord, we pray for people who have recently had surgery for continued recovery. Lord, we pray for this church in these last couple of weeks before Christmas, Lord, that it can be a time and a season of joy, that we can approach this time of year worshipfully. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study in your word, that we be pointed to the gospel and to the hope that is found in Christ the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It can be hard to imagine your life without something once it's part of your life. Whenever I talk to younger people who are about to get married, I say, once you get married, you forget that there was ever a time when you weren't married because it's all-encompassing. It impacts every area of your life. I think of the total paradigm shift that having a kid is. Yeah, you remember that there was a time when you didn't have them, but it becomes impossible to imagine life without them. Kids are all-encompassing. I think of the absolute revolution that the internet has been to the world. Most of human history was lived without the internet, but now it impacts so much of what we do, how we find information, how we consume information, how we're entertained, how we interact. It's hard to imagine that Pandora's box being closed. The Bible begins with God's good creation, and we see a world where there is no sin. And it's hard to imagine because our world is so greatly impacted by sin. It touches every area of our lives. And so it's hard to imagine what a world without sin would even be like. It's a short-lived period of the Bible where all is right and as it should be. In this passage, we'll see a perfect world vividly described in Genesis 2. 
before seeing the fall of man in chapter 3. It's a paradigm shift. A world that had been made perfect is now sinful. But we also see, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, a glimmer of hope that this fall is not the end of the story. While God's good creation is no longer sinless, God is still good. At Christmas time, we remember the story of the incarnation and the Christ coming into the world. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had promised long ago to a world that had fallen. And so we continue in our Advent series this morning, Christmas and Genesis. And today we'll look at the first telling of the gospel in the Bible. And we'll look at today's passage in three scenes. Paradise experienced, paradise lost, and paradise promised. And the main idea from today's passage is that from the beginning, Jesus was the hope for a fallen world. First scene, paradise experienced. Two weeks ago, when we were in chapter 1, our point was that God had created a good world because God is good. And in chapter 2, we're seeing what life in that good world looks like. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord has made this garden, this space for man to dwell. We see that the garden offers sustenance. We see that two trees are mentioned in this passage, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is mentioned in three books in the entire Bible. Here in Genesis, it's mentioned four times in the book of Proverbs, where the tree is associated with wisdom. And finally, it's mentioned in the book of Revelation and appears again in a new heaven and a new earth at the end of the age. The tree of life is a symbol of the divine presence and the true life which is given by God. The tree can be associated with life only because the Lord God is the giver of life. And then there's the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Various theologians throughout the centuries have tried to interpret what exactly that means. This knowledge of good and evil seems to be more of a reference to moral autonomy. It would give man a sense of entitlement over being able to judge what we think is right and wrong. And really, that's so much of the crux of humanity's problem today, that we think we know better than God. We think we're the greater judge of righteousness than the Lord. But the reality is that we so often act out of our own self-interest and desire rather than the wisdom of the Lord. We so often act with clouded judgment or with a lack of wisdom rather than God's perfect knowledge. And the passage continues to describe the garden, verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
we continue to see the abundance and fitness of this land. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The, the fact that work precedes the fall shows that work is not a bad thing, nor is it inherently a judgment or result of divine punishment. Work is good. It exists in a sinless world. When I've preached before on the subject of heaven, I've argued that there's work in heaven, not drudgery and frustration and stressful work, but labors of fulfillment and service. Heaven is not a retirement community for all of eternity. One command is given, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The command is given not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No explanation is given, although no explanation is needed either. God is sovereign. There's much more that could be said. Now I want to move to the end of chapter 2 where it leaves us with a picture of Adam and Eve in a perfect place where there is not yet sin. Chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All is perfect, but it's short-lived. We come to our second scene, Paradise Lost. And we come to chapter, chapter 3, and we see the fall. Certainly, it's a familiar passage in the Bible. In Genesis 3, we see this paradigm that so often plays itself out in the human heart in regards to sin. Doubting, distorting, and dismissing God's word. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? It's introducing the idea that God's word is subject to human judgment and opinion. It's getting that man to question God's word. But the word will also be distorted. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? As a matter of fact, God actually did not say that. What God actually said was in 2, 16 and 17, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He gives them all the trees except one. And again, we can bristle at that. We can question, well, why was that one tree such a big deal? But I would argue that the better question is, why was that one command so hard to follow? The command gets distorted as if it applies to all the trees. Chapter 3, verse 2, Eve responds. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So far, so good. Verse 3, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's also distorting the command because she's adding on to the command. She says that God said you couldn't eat or even touch the tree, lest you die. Verse 4, the serpent outright contradicts God. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And in that, he's calling God a liar. The serpent flatly contradicts God's word and denies the weight of the consequences of disobedience. Continuing to speak in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's tempting Eve, telling her of how good it will be to eat this fruit of this tree. Now, he's already distorted. He's already lied. But here, the serpent is actually now telling a half-truth. Eve will have a greater insight to good and evil but it will begin her realizing her own sin and moral failure and how human that's become. The fall of man is a remarkable story. It's very dramatic, but the thought process which will lead Eve to sin is pretty unremarkable because it's pretty typical of how we all think and how we all approach sin, thinking it's something better, thinking that Somehow, we know better than God. The same justifications and distortions and false promises that we so often cling to in order to go our own way and to say, my kingdom come, my will be done. Verses 6 and 7, we see the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They had been persuaded to eat the fruit with the promise that it would make them like God. Instead, they eat the fruit of the tree and realize they're not even fully like each other. Shame is introduced. And we also see man's first attempt to cover up sin as Adam and Eve try to cover themselves up. But ultimately, they're unable because you cannot hide from an all-knowing God and you cannot cover up your own sin. It's not just about the fruit. That's the final straw. But what drives them to it? It's not hunger. And besides that, they have all sorts of fruit-bearing trees. They're in paradise. It's the sin of pride, thinking that they know better than God. And again, that underlines so many of our sins. We think we're smarter. All sins that we knowingly commit are an act of pride. It's the sin of covetousness, thinking that we don't have enough, that there are things that God is withholding from us, that to truly be happy or to truly be fulfilled or to truly be joyful what we need is something that's a result of this sin. We convince ourselves that the sin will be better than the righteousness. They were in paradise, and that wasn't enough. And it's a sin of failing to honor the almighty creator of heaven and earth. And that introduces sin to a world where there was no sin. The Pandora's box is opened. The sin gets uncovered. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
Once again, we see an attempt to hide. Once again, it proves futile. Verses 9 through 11. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? John Sailhammer is helpful in this passage. The Lord isn't raining down brimstone and fire. He's not bringing condemnation. Adam and Eve have the opportunity to confess and to come forward with what they've done. God isn't asking them these questions from a lack of knowledge. He's all-knowing. But it's through God's grace that God, his questions to Adam are convicted. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Between Adam and Eve, we've seen pride, covetousness, hiding. Now we see blame. Adam takes no ownership. He blames both Eve and God, the woman you gave me. So often we make excuses for our sins. We blame God or spouses or circumstances or family, or lack of resources. We commit our own sins. I was watching a video this week from a person who used to go to church and who no longer considered herself religious. And she was talking in this video about how one of the things that really kind of drove her away from the church was this teaching of sin, this doctrine that all people are sinful. I thought to myself, have you ever met a person? We sin. The world is a messed up place. There's darkness and dysfunction, and all of us know that. God had promised death for the sin, and ultimately death does come, but not immediately. And even that is an act of grace. God would have been justified to wipe out Adam and Eve right there, but he doesn't. And that brings us to our third scene, Paradise Promised. In verse 14, the Lord begins to pronounce judgment. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But then in verse 15, we see something very interesting. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If the Bible ended at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there'd be no way to make sense of the rest of that verse. But this isn't the end of the story, and it's pointing forward. There are a number of things that are interesting about Genesis 3.15. It's famously, over the centuries, oftentimes been referred to as the first gospel. In Genesis 3, the text never explicitly identifies the serpent with Satan. But in light of other passages, we see the connection made, such as Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. Genesis talks of an offspring of the woman, and that word offspring in Hebrew also means seed. And that's typically thought of in masculine terms. 
Genealogies in the Bible are based on fatherhood. But here in Genesis, it's talking about an offspring of Eve. Tim Keller argues that this is the only time in history where we see someone who's an offspring of a woman. Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus would be an offspring of a woman. Jesus is the only one born in history without an earthly father, divinely conceived of the Holy Spirit. But he does have an earthly mother. It's necessary that Jesus is human because it's in his humanity that he is like us and able to atone for our sins. And it is through the woman, Mary, that Jesus incarnationally is fully God through the Spirit and fully man through being born of Mary. Adam and Eve tried to cover up what they had done, but they could not. The offspring of the woman could because he is man like us, but he is also Lord. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, by show of hands, who here loves snakes? No one? I don't think most people do. Some people might, and that's fine. I know we have varying degrees, probably, of comfort around snakes. My mom, if there's a TV show that shows a snake, she, she can't even look. She has to look away just from the TV. The purpose of Genesis chapter 3 is not some origin story as to why humans are a little bit uncomfortable around snakes. Because it's instead referring to two groups who will be at odds. The children of Eve and the children of the serpent. It's not talking about reptiles. It's about God's people being at odds with the devil and his minions. And where it talks about the offspring of the serpent, again, the point of that isn't so much procreation. I've talked about this before when we've talked about sonship in the Bible. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus will bring this up when talking to the Pharisees where he calls them sons of the devil. He's not saying that literally the devil is their dad, but that because they're acting like him in accordance with what he would want. Functionally, they're acting like his offspring. And so the text is, text is referring to these two groups who are at odds. The people of God, the children of Eve, and the offspring of the serpent, those who are opposed to the people of God. And where it's talking about the offspring, it's plural in the Hebrew. But then the text shifts to singular when it says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first gospel. The first telling of how God will bring redemption. Because the text points to an ultimate offspring of the woman who will crush Satan. But it will come at a cost. Because to crush Satan, the son will be bitten by the snake metaphorically. He'll experience death. That's what it means by the heel being bruised. But in the process, he will crush the serpent. 
Because Jesus has died and risen, the future victory is already known. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the Bible's closing chapters, we see this final defeat of Satan. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the final crushing of the head of the serpent through the offspring of the woman. It's the defeat of evil, and it's the restoration of the perfect. The offspring of the woman promised so long ago came into the world. The Old Testament will pick up this promise and continually teach us about this offspring who is to come. It's interesting that we're in Genesis 3, and right in the next chapter, Genesis 4, this is the story of Cain and Abel. We see this continuing decline of a now sinful world. Abel is a good son, but he gets murdered. Cain is not the promised son. It's through their third son, Seth. The Lord is working his promise. We see a continual fall and decline of humanity. The Lord brings judgment on the earth through a flood, but he spares one man and his family. Eventually, the Lord calls Abraham and makes a great promise to him. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, actually. From Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 22, we spend 30 years with Abraham and this continued promise of offspring, that he would be the father of many nations. But then it gets more and more narrow as the story goes forward. He would be given a son. Then it gets narrowed even further. He'd be given a son through Sarah. That son, Isaac, is born. And the Lord asks Abraham to sacrifice the son. Unimaginable. After all these years, all these repetitions of this promise, God finally gives the son to Abraham and asks him to sacrifice the boy. But it points to how the Lord will not spare his son who is to come. Isaac is a promised son, but he's not the ultimate promised son. Genesis 22, verse 13 and 14. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Isaac fathers Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the one chosen to continue on the family line through whom the promise will be fulfilled. Jacob has 12 sons who become the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. The longest story in the whole book of Genesis revolves around one of those sons, Joseph. But it's interesting because Joseph is not the promised son. Joseph is not the one in the line that leads to Christ. Betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, but he's also put in a, a unique position of high office in the Egyptian court, and he would be in a position to save his family in a time of famine. Why is Joseph's story the longest? Is it because it's a great story? 
It is a great story, but that's not the reason. Is it because it shows God's ability to work evil for good? It does show us that, but that's not the reason. The reason why Joseph's story is almost a quarter of the entire book of Genesis is that those actions save his brother Judah. And that's what keeps the line going. At the end of Jacob's life, he's pronouncing blessing on his sons and says to Judah in Genesis 49, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. And then in Genesis 49:10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so in the immediate aftermath of the first sin in Genesis 3, we see this promised offspring. And as Genesis ends, it's taken us from Adam and Eve, ultimately to Abraham, ultimately to Judah, and it's looking forward to what God is doing. And the rest of the Old Testament will continue to point forward. Moses pointed to a greater prophet in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I think of a book like Ruth. Great story. But the reason why it matters to the Bible is in the end, her and Boaz have a son named Obed, the grandfather of David. In David's reign, we see more prophetic language. He's a king, but he's not the ultimate king. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The scriptures bear witness to a coming son. He's the coming king, he's the coming priest, and he's the coming seed of the woman into the world. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The Old Testament is the story of God working through people and through nations to bring this child into the world. And Christmas is the time where we celebrate that this child has come. The world is sinful, but that is not the last word. The world has fallen, but it is not without hope. And because Jesus came into the world, we can have hope that the Lord is going to finish what he promised. That the gospel is not just some quaint story, but it's the reality of the divine plan that God is working in real time and space and human history where the Lord will finally and ultimately crush the serpent and restore his creation to the perfect world it was created to be. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the goodness of your gospel, Lord. In a world where there is sin and where that sin brings death, Lord, that even from the beginning, even from the first sin, that there was a hope of life. And so, Lord, we praise you for that and we rejoice in that. And at this time of year as we come together, may we celebrate and remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.